Hello, I'm Matthew Packwood and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be talking to Tim Doroff, the creative director of Resolution in Sydney. Tim started his career in the 1980s and developed his skills in the dawn of digital visual effects. Tim's highly skilled in the areas of visual effects, animation, editing, design and creative direction. He specialises in directing and creating awesome visual effects for television commercials. He's worked with many of Australia's top brands and advertising agencies. For over 25 years, he's been spearheading creative projects at Resolution, which have won many awards and been critically acclaimed. Throughout my chat with Tim today, I'm going to try and cover as many topics as possible. We will be discussing what it takes to work at the elite level within the industry. We're also going to talk about developing projects with ad agencies, as well as discussing some of his great projects that he's done throughout his career. Prepare yourself, Tim. I've got a lot of questions and we've only got an hour. So let's get into it. Thanks very much, Tim, for taking the time and coming in today. I'm really looking forward to the chat. Oh, no worries, Matt. It's going to be a good experience. Earlier today, Tim, I was chatting to Patrick Clare on the phone and he asked me to say hello to you. Oh, that's terrific. Patrick was a great freelancer who worked for us many years ago when Res was in its very first office and it was a great experience for us and I think it was a great experience for him as well. Those of you who don't know who Patrick Clare is, he is the director behind opening title sequences like True Detective and Westworld. All right, so let's get into it. So you were once a freelancer and you've owned a business for a very long time and employed a lot of freelancers. So I'm going to ask you a few questions about how a freelancer should operate. What are the key skills you need to work successfully as a freelancer? One of the problems we have is people being available when we need them. So being on your phone or your email um, and responding really quickly is is really important if you're going to get that gig from us. If we don't hear back from someone pretty quickly, we move on and, and, and keep looking. A lot of the things are just common courtesies in business, like turning up on time. If you say you're going to start at nine o'clock, turn up at 8.50 um, and be ready, have your coffee and all those things and be ready for work at nine. Being great with deadlines, if you know you've got to have, if the producer tells you you need to have something ready by 5pm, make sure that you manage your work in such a way that it's ready by, you know, quarter to five. Uh, If that means you notice you, you think you might have to work through your lunch hour to be ready, better to do that than be late. I like people who can think quickly on their feet. They can sort of solve problems on the run and they don't need to spend too much time testing things, prepping things, going back and forward. So if you can think quickly on your thief, we value freelancers like that. You know, one thing I will say also is dress to please. Uh, try and appreciate the office culture you're walking into and dress accordingly. We've had some people who come in wearing thongs and singlets and it's, it just isn't quite the right vibe with clients around. So what are the key things that people should know before they become a freelancer? I think most people who become good freelancers, take a very business-like attitude to it, and they know how to manage their tax, they know how to manage their cash flow, and they're the ones, I think, that succeed. And they're obviously aware of, of what the industry demands of them. 
The other thing I would say maybe is that full-time employment is a very good place to learn. If you're in a good company, there's no better place to be where you can be mentored. There's a bit more room to fail when you're a full-time employee and to make mistakes and watch people who are more experienced than you and how they manage, they manage the pressure, I guess. So I would say they're my main points. What are your thoughts on managing the financial side of being a freelancer? I found that it can bite you in the ass if you're not careful. It does. And I think a lot of people aren't prepared for how much they've got to invoice people and wait for the money to turn up in their account while they're trying to manage their rent and their repayments on a car or whatever it is. It's uh, The money comes and goes a little unevenly and uh, you can do well some months and then other months it's dry. And you even have to think about how you're going to market yourself, setting up websites and those kinds of things. And um, a lot of people we look at, they don't present themselves very well in that space and, and therefore they don't probably get the work they potentially could. Alrighty, if you could tell us now a little bit about the software that you run at Resolution. I think so far as software goes, we run a desktop sort of based practice. Our big software is, is Nuke, After Effects, Premiere, Maya, Mudbox, ZBrush and Resolve, which is our grading desk. I think if you know those or some of those, then we want to hear from you. Do you guys use any Cinema 4D? We actually are increasingly using Cinema 4D as well. Um, there's a limit to how much any studio can have and, you know, a never-ending list of software. So I guess we try to focus on the things that give us as much range as we can. But Maya's never really let us down over many years now as well. So what are the sort of things you like to see in a mid-level showreel? I always look for someone whose work has something of an emotional and artistic quality to it. Sometimes we are only looking for a technician, someone who can do a good roto, someone who can do a matte painting, but I tend to not take a deep interest in those people on a longer-term basis because Res is in the business of creating work. It's finely crafted and the studio always tries to produce work that connects with people, that, that it's, some, it's, it's, it's not just addy, it's, it's got something else for them. And if I can see people are producing that in their work, they sort of see the importance of creating content that it has uh, beauty in its own right or has some feeling about it. That's the work that interests me and they're the designers that interest me. Any advice on the sort of things you wouldn't put in a showreel? Don't do monsters with clubs that knock things, you know, bash people over the head, I think. I, I see so many reels from students coming out that, uh, you know, the work that they're showing us is, and the, and, and the schools that are uh, getting them to generate this work, it looks v very um, focused on what you would might do in gaming. And they're monsters with clubs and they're bashing, typically bashing other things on, other creatures on the head. And we have, there's almost no utility if, for that in advertising. If you want to be in more in the content and advertising space and do that kind of short form work, then look to generate in your portfolio work that feels like that. Set yourself projects and assignments where you know you're creating things from directors and, and design and post companies that you admire. If you're not generating work like that, you probably won't catch their eye. So we're going to move on now to talk a little bit about your interests. So what TV shows are you enjoying at the moment? 
I got Netflix about a year ago and I'm into Stranger Things, uh, which I finished actually, and The Crown. Very different shows, but both of them have very high production values, great writing that underpins the story and narrative, so love those. I also um, love The Fall. That was a terrific sort of murder mystery. And Moonlight is the film of choice for me at the Academy Awards this year. I just think Moonlight is probably one of the best films made in the last few years. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got into the visual effects industry? It was a bit of an accident. I really wanted to go to art school and I really couldn't. I had a lot of dramas going on in my family and I moved out of home. I kind of knew I had to get a job and I fell into a post-production company called VTC, which was a a very big and important post-production company in Roseville in the North Shore. And I started as a runner. Within about four months, I'd been noticed by the guy who was leading the VFX department there and got training. And I uh, I loved it. And I was good at it, I guess, as well. This was in the very early 90s. And I, I think I was the third person in Australia who even had worked on computer graphics. It was a right place, right time experience. I kind of knew I wanted to be in film and TV in some way, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do exactly. And suddenly I fell into computer animation. Was it computer animation that put you on the path to setting up your own studio? No. Actually, my parents were always at me to get a degree. And at about three years into doing computer animation, I was working 15 and 16 hour days and on weekends and I burnt out. Um, no surprises there. I was um, 21 and having no fun. I was, I was all work and no play guy. I actually decided I would go to Uni of New South Wales and do something completely different, which was psychology and sociology, which I studied for four years and ended up practicing for two and a half years. And it kind of ended with us doing a workshop with Peter Weir and Brian Brown out at at Mount Druitt Hospital with young people. And uh, I loved working with them so much and it really made me recall how much I loved uh, my work and um, came back into it much more mature, much better educated and much better equipped, I guess, to handle burnout. So could you tell us a little bit about the journey from doing psychology at uni to where you are now? It was Totally about learning on the job. All the computers we worked on back then were worth $2 million computers. So you had to just be in a workplace that where you could sort of teach yourself. I responded well to that. I was a keen observer of, of what was going on around me. I would be the guy who'd put his hand up and say, let me give that a go. And I would work back at night and do small jobs for the facilities people so I could sort of get on the gear and get my kind of hours up. And that's how it happened, really. And... I, I kind of formed very positive relationships with clients and I, I was I kind of knew how to drive that machine quite fast, really. I could get stuff done on time. So it got me more jobs and more recognition and it grew from there. And then the, the Keating recession of the 90s hit and the company I was with uh, went belly up real quick. And I found myself with a bunch of clients who liked me and no place to sort of work and I, I went freelance, basically rented these very expensive rooms on an hourly rate and put my own fee on top of that and charged it back to the client. First as Tim Duroff and very quickly as Resolution Design on the advice of my accountant. Resolution was an idea that came out of um, some very big changes going on in my personal life, and some big decisions I was making and a marriage that was breaking down and, and also what I felt about the way the work is finished in our industry and the, the groups of people that are involved in making creative decisions. And, um, and that grew slowly. I took on an assistant and a producer and, uh, and eventually um, desktop arrived and it was, became 
affordable to to get your own gear and um, and that I did and uh, and got my first studio along with that gear and it grew from there to our own premises where we wired ourselves very heavily into it and you know had four suites running and uh, a, a 3D department and from there into where we are now so it was very it evolved slowly and it evolved I think we lost some clients along the way who preferred me you know, as a independent freelancer. Um, but then I picked up new clients who, who caught on to the fact that the studio was producing good work, a work that was, you know, different to what they were getting at the more traditional post houses that were on, on offer in Sydney at that time. So pretty much since the beginning, you've sort of been running your own freelance and your own business. I, I think I've been for two, two job interviews in my entire life. I'm going to move on now to talk a little bit about your work. It'd be great if you could tell us about one of your projects that you thought was successful and had an impact on your career. There's a big saying in advertising that we don't save lives, and and it's true enough, except that on this one occasion, I I did have a chance to work with a director who's a great friend of mine, Paul Goldman, and an agency called BMF, which included Warren Brown and Paul Fishlock, and we made a a campaign called the Anti-Smoking Campaign, um, which was responsible for saving something like 400,000 lives in Australia of people who literally quit smoking. It was a great campaign to be involved. It had a very distinctive look and it's a distinctive story. You were basically diving down people's throats and, and going into their lungs and their arteries and, uh, and seeing cancers born. And at, at a time when in VFX terms, that was almost impossible to do. I vividly remember that ad, especially the part where you go down the throat. Um, that's amazing. It's had an impact on me. It stuck with me all those years. So I'd like to talk to you now a little bit about failures, either on a project or something that you've failed at in your career and what you've learned from those failures. Gosh, there's a question. I've had failures. There's been a lot of heartache for me around them. I think if I look back on it, it's a lot about around being the boss. I am primarily a senior creative guy and I think I found it very complex having to deal with how at times people behave in the workplace and how I address those problems with them and find a solution that's acceptable to me and to the business. It's definitely the most difficult part of, uh, of, of what I do and often the one that causes the most stress. Definitely, I found that as well. Most of my failures were either in management or with people's relationships. Yes. When you're working really closely with others in a studio on a project, how do you balance between being a manager and sort of being a colleague and being a friend? What's your strategy on that? I think it's very hard at times to be friends with people who work for you. At times you have to have some very difficult conversations and it does. Draw, there's a line you have to draw. I still question where you put that line. But over the years, I've focused less on trying to be friends with people and just be a great manager. And if the friendships happen, and definitely over the years, I've retained some wonderful, warm relationships with uh, previous employees that, that I will always regard very highly. I found that most of my bosses on the way up became my friends and I'm still friends with them now. But the employees, once I started like supervising and managing staff in my own business, I never really built a big bond with them over the long run. No, I think, I think that's true. There's some sayings about it's lonely at the top and I have to say sometimes you do miss the, the camaraderie of being more with the team. You know, sometimes you have to ask people, they're going to have to work on the weekend or they're going to have to redo a scene again because it's not right and it's not easy news to deliver at times. Tell us one bit of advice that you'd like to pass on that you learned throughout your career. 
Don't worry about what people think. Do you make your own decisions about where you're going? And if you have a great conviction about them, go with it. Let's talk about resolution design now as a company. Could you tell us a little bit about the history and the culture that you've created? I grew up in very big post houses. We call them Death Star post houses because they were literally cavernous technical places with flashing lights. And I thought they were really rotten places to do your best creative work. And at the time I was traveling a lot to London and looking at how things were developing over there in the post scene and in New York, I really felt that you could set up a better space for craft to happen. And Resolution was born in a sense out of the desire to hide the technology space feel um, much more like a home than an office and to do things on a smaller scale but do them better. It'd be great if you could talk about how many employees you think is a good size studio. I think we found there was a certain size you have to be to get the jobs you want to do and it wasn't good enough to stay as three people even though it's a lot of fun. We sort of found that somewhere between six and 12 people allowed us to do the kind of work and be recognised as able to do the kind of work that the industry was dishing out. You've been working in the visual effects industry since the 80s. There was a big change in the mid-90s in the visual effects industry. It'd be great if you could tell us a little bit about that and discuss how you adapted in this time. I think we were one of the original disruptors. I I don't think there was anyone that came before us that was being as disruptive to the state of play in the post and visual effects industry. We really developed a new way of working that was um, quite a different workflow. Our emphasis was very much on design and not a facilities and post-based output of work. So rather than directors coming to us um, with their rushes and telling us the problems and we sat there as operators and did their bidding, we really began to um, author work and take work and treat it uh, in, in, in much the way that designers do with any brief. So you're talking about the period of the mid-90s or the early 90s there? Yeah, it'd be, it would have been early 90s, really. But by the mid-90s and definitely by 2000, we were well underway with that process. And it was, it, was, it was working very well with some of the difficulties of that transition from what were turnkey computers um, that you, you bought for $1 million, $2 million to trying to get desktop computers, and they were apples in those days, to do the same kind of work but at a much uh, more cost-effective uh and much more interesting process, I guess. I think it's hard for people who are starting out now to imagine how big a change it was. Absolutely. It's very hard to imagine what it means to work in a linear way, but, but yes, I certainly began at a time when we were linear editing. So when you were setting up your own studio, what were your aims? What were you trying to achieve that was different to sort of what was happening at the time? I, I always remember a post house I worked in uh, called Video Lab that uh, has gone now. But it, you know, I used to work in it a lot, and it really looked like a seventies Gold, Co- Gold Coast motel, and not in a good way. And uh, the colours were awful. They had lattice, lattice sort of panels up on the walls, and I thought this is completely and utterly revolting. Uh, and and so I guess I um, my my goal was to to, I think, make the space feel much more uh, suitable for craft and for good design to take place and also to make it a less stressful environment, um, get some daylight and some and some real air into the place, put up some good art um, and uh, and make the space feel warm and friendly. And I think, I think that's the 
I've always been, if I think if I'd done anything else with my career, I would have become an architect. And uh, and I, I kind of saw how important for me a, a good, a well-organized space was for, for doing good work. So do you think the environment that you create has a big impact on your staff and clients? I hope so. I think it does. I think it sends a huge message to them about where they are. I wish it did more sometimes, but I think at a subliminal level, it's definitely who we are. Like It's definitely a big part of the company's identity and brand. And I think for the staff, our desk space is large. The people don't work too closely to each other because I think when you've worked 12 or 15 hour days and that happens occasionally, you can't be packed in like sardines. It's not good. For those people who are interested in setting up their own business, what do you think the challenges are and the benefits are of running your own studio? I think the benefit is you get to control the the work. You get to define it and you get to run a team that will make that work happen. And there's nothing better than um, getting something out and onto your reel that you feel is important and that you're proud of. That's the big benefit. The financial benefits go up and down of that. I think people from the outside look at, at companies like us and, and imagine that, you know, if you're a business owner, you must be doing well. But sometimes there are a lot of sacrifices you make for the business. And I guess that that can be a downside. It's also been very personally satisfying for me to have mentored so many people through resolution over the years and see them grow and become quite senior people. Patrick Clare would be, you know, a small example of that. He was only with us a short time as a as a freelancer, but there's so many good people who have gone on to have really senior roles in the industry at uh, Psyop and and all kinds of great places around the world, and uh, I'm proud of that. So now I'd like to move on and talk a little bit about working with ad agencies. You know, a lot of people who don't work with ad agencies don't understand it. Uh, And sometimes I don't understand it. Sure. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) All right. Tell us a little bit about the process of working with an ad agency from initial brief through to final completion. Basically, we usually have a storyboard when we begin this process and we try and identify which scenes from the storyboard require a visual effect. And then each scene is broken down in terms of understanding what expectations there are in that scene. And usually we would do a previs then of that visual effect and um, have a plan for it. And in previs, we try to determine what the lens will be uh, the scale of the location. So we're, we're relying at that point on location photographs and information about what we're shooting. And you're pretty close to getting a VFX supervisor out to the shoot and gathering as much data as you can from the shoot, which includes, you know, measurements of things, lenses, camera heights, and all that kind of thing. Uh, Once the edit is finished, then you can begin to get underway with those effects scenes. Sometimes you can begin earlier if the editor pulls the shots you're working on, but generally speaking, once the edit's locked off, you get underway. So tell us a little bit about how you manage the visual effects production, and when do you make the visual effects schedule? The schedule's set almost before the shoot happens, actually. The schedule happens really early, often with the budget. So when you're um, when you're looking at the storyboard from the agency or from the director, you, you, you break it out and you go, okay, there's 13 scenes to do. It's a 60-second commercial. And you start to put those into a schedule and go, these are the shots that we're doing. This is a really big shot, so this one has to begin early. Sometimes we can actually like literally start once the job's, even before the shoot, you can start working on a shot and getting the models ready and stuff like that. So so you have a schedule there fairly early in the piece. And what are the approval processes like? Complicated. 
<laughs> you know, when there's a, a director and an agency involved and a client, you can imagine that the work goes up at a certain point. There's lots of notes and explanations about work in progress because it's very hard for people to understand work that's not finished. I find it's very helpful if we can get them into res for the first few meetings and I can talk them through what they're seeing and stop the panic because there's so much panicking around early work in progress in visual effects. And later on, as uh, as obviously the work evolves and the renders come out of the system and the, the work gets finer, people start to relax a lot more because they can sort of imagine how it's going to get better. So when you've got two hats on and you're working both as the director and as the visual effects producer, do you change the process much or do you sort of like stick to the traditional process? Actually, the, the temptation is to change the procedure and shortcut certain things, but it's really best not to. We actually try and go through a very the, the same discipline ourselves so that we don't trip over things. Um, I think storyboards or good previses are absolutely essential in the process. And it's really good to go through and actually identify in your shot list all the shots that require visual effects in the same way we would do with any client. So with the advertising agency's expectations, how do you meet their expectations uh, without blowing the budget? (laughs) It's very difficult because an agency is made up of two different forces that are talking to you. One are the agency creatives who expect the world. Uh, The other is the producers from those agencies who want you to make the budget. And they're, they're two very competing forces. They're two very important forces. But getting the balance right between uh, the not overdoing it and but also meeting expectations is uh, is critical we generally do a treatment these days and it's the treatment and the schedule that I think keeps everyone on the straight and narrow and defines all the expectations. So we show them ahead of time what we're promising to do either in words or in pictures or both and and that becomes the the, the rule book about what's expected and what how far we'll go. So once you've hit like the end of your budget and the visual effect doesn't look the way it should, what generally happens then? Uh, that's the time for a good executive producer to step in and have a conversation. <laughs> um, and sometimes we have to take the heat and, uh, and look after it because the money literally has run out. Other times, if it's a well-documented and there's a good paper trail, that, you know, the clients can be quite reasonable about that thing and understanding. And if the conversation's held well and, and there's a good, well-written treatment and, a, uh, and it's veered off brief a bit or things have occurred that aren't your fault, many clients will quite reasonably step up and, and go, okay, here's some extra money uh, that we have in our contingency and we'll help you. But yeah, VFX is at the very end of a quite a long process and often by then the money's getting tight. Do you think the key to working through these sort of things is a good producer? Oh, absolutely. A good producer is absolutely critical to that. And it's certainly something that you do without it at your own peril, if you know what I mean. Over the years, I've produced a lot of work myself and I found it very hard wearing both the director's hat and the producer's hat. It's very hard. I, I, in very early days, I had to do obviously my own producing and booking and conversations about money. But ultimately, um, you're not the right person if you're the lead creative on the job to have those conversations. And uh, generally, it doesn't. It, it's better to give that uh, area of the business over to a producer who has the expertise. So I'd like to discuss the area now of being multidisciplined. So could you tell us a little bit about being both a design director and a visual effects artist and sort of how you sort of work these two things together and what are the benefits of being multidisciplined? 
Well, I think when you are a visual effects artist, you work very closely with senior agency creatives and and very often very senior directors. I owe an enormous amount of debt to some of the directors and I've worked with particularly who've taught me things that I, I may never have learned about cinematography and about editing and about colour. And uh, it, it was an amazing time, but I, I think I've always been the person looking for a challenge and I think that's perhaps what's kept me fresh and kept me kind of loving what I do for so long. And I think directing is at times, a thing that uh, you you naturally wonder, could I do that? You know, um, you're in the position as a VFX artist of seeing the very good and the very bad of direction, and often you end up with rushes from some quarters of the industry, and you think, wow, this is a real mess, and I'm just going to have to fix this, and I I could have done better than this. And I think agency producers notice that too, that that some of the VFX artists were in and and companies were in this position of fixing up the work of inferior, you know, um, directors and, uh, and, and the companies they worked for and, and were patching it up for a song. Uh, and, and they began to wonder what would happen if they gave that, that budget they had to, uh, to an artist. And, and, and I wasn't the first VFX artist to head out and try direction. Um, but I was asked eventually to, um, see if I could bring direction and, um, and the artistry of, of design and VFX together. And, um, we gave it a go in small ways and it kind of worked and it, 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 it helped with difficult budgets. And, uh, I think that's, I think that was, that was the, a good challenge for me at that time. Has it helped you in your career having the ability to work in both disciplines? Absolutely. Um, I think it's it's vital now that you can run... Um, there's some projects that have so many layers and complexities to them that, in fact, it's it's much better if the um, a lot of the direction and the artistry and the design all comes together under one roof. Uh, some, and, and we've got some projects on, on our portfolio. Um, think of things like Bullet Bourbon uh, that you can see where where the work is so layered and so complicated. I don't know how you could you could do it over two or three different premises. So for those people who are in the industry and on their way up, do you think that being multi-skilled is very important? I think so. I think increasingly, yeah. I've been very surprised that 3D artists and 2D artists could be in the one person because I grew up in a time in the industry where they were very separate departments and there were, you know, jokes flying back and forward between 2D people and 3D people about each other. But now it's not uncommon to to meet artists that work across both mediums very fluidly and good on them. I think the work they're doing is incredible. As a creative director, what are the sort of methods you use to sort of come up with good ideas? I'm a great believer in sleeping on things. I like to have a little bit of time. Uh, very often we don't have the time I'd like, but I like to uh, read a script, think about it a bit, but put it down and come back to it. I find something about that time allows me to uh, come up with something fresh. And it can often be riding the bike to work or doing something quite innocuous, really, and suddenly something hits me. I, I'm a great believer in just waiting for the for the thing to come. I do love books and I, I, I keep a very big bookshelf that's in our front office at Res and flick through things. And not because I plan to take anything out of those books exactly. I just find that they're like 
they get the brain working the right way. So if, um, I keep a lot of graphic design and, and photographic books and just by looking at the work of great artists and great designers, I find it sort of sets me right so that my my brain, I think, starts to think correctly. I, I'm not a big fan of, of looking too much at other people's work. What makes a studio perform really well and have a good culture? I think a strong creative director does. I, I think that was always the thing I noticed was missing in post houses. I think if I look at, at uh, some of the most successful companies around the world, it's a common theme. They all have strong creative directors who are driving the various teams within the business, the 3D departments, the design departments, the compositing areas, and trying to keep the work focused. So now I'd like to move on to your projects. Uh, could you tell us about three projects that you found were really satisfying and challenged you to create some great work? One of the first ones I want to tell you about is uh, what we did for Wicked Energy. That was a, a kind of energy drink that was developed with a very strong branding cue of tattoo kind of exterior on the bottle. And we were one of a few companies asked to pitch on uh, the bid for it. It was one of the craziest scripts I've ever read. If you if you look at the commercial, it, um, it, it involves a sort of geisha um, going through all these kind of crazy experiences, surfing on the back of, uh, you know, a, a koi fish and, uh, you know, landing landing in a treasure chest and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. And I, I read it and I went, what do you do with this? This is this is mad. And then, you know, as we sort of dissected the script and the idea of it, we invited a very good tattoo artist to come and work with us and actually help draw and create these characters that, were, that, that had to inhabit the story. But I had to suddenly learn about, you know, what the demographic we were appealing to was 20-year-old guys and uh, and what they were into. And we, we learned so much about tattoo culture and uh, what was right, what was wrong. There's so many rules about where you put certain tattoos, where they shouldn't go on the body. And we want to obey all of that and do something really, um, really fun, really authentic and, and really captivating. It was to be a spot just for cinema. So we knew that we had to sort of get the resolution up to a really beautiful level. And we, um, we wanted a sound you know, a soundscape, a, a music track that went with it that, that would really rock in the cinema. And um, for that, we brought on uh, a guy called John O'Mara who was working at Sonar to um, compose that. So we were we got to really own that piece. There was some live action to shoot. There was a, a guy who had to take a drink and um, a, a, a drip of the, you know, the drink ran down and got the whole thing going. Um, and and there was everything else in it as well. There was all our illustration, graphic design uh, skills, animation skills, 3D projection skills, compositing, colour. It was everything that we felt was should happen under one roof happening under one roof. Was it technically challenging? Was it 2D or 3D? It was everything. It was all of that. It was it was 3D character design and rigging that had to look 2D. It was projecting those onto a 3D body, which we hadn't done before. It was shooting live action. It was everything. And uh, so it was a marvellous spot, and it, it's one of the ones I still look at and I'm really proud to have been involved with. So let's move on now to the AGL project. What were the challenges in this project? Another project that I really learned a lot, I think this was probably my biggest directing challenge to date, was uh, for AGL. It came to us as a very simple brief to do a bit of a history lesson using existing footage for AGL, and it turned into a six-day shoot. We tried to find a fresh way of presenting their story that would bring their history to life as a visual story, and it was an amazing experience shooting for six days. I think 
a lot of agencies still potentially put design and post companies a little bit lower on their radar for doing production work that would involve a six-day shoot and would imagine that maybe a visual effects guy couldn't maybe direct talent. And I think that commercial for me showed me and maybe a few other people that we had that capacity to be a, um, a proper production company and manage all the things that go with it. At the end of that process, the agency were re-signed by their client for another two years, which was a really great thing for the agency and for us knowing that we'd been part of that. And uh, yeah, for us, it was a, a really big step forward in the world. You had some amazing sort of 3D scenes as well in there. Yeah, there was a very complex scene in it where we had to recreate the Royal Arcade, which doesn't exist anymore. And we re-researched it thoroughly, going to the Mitchell Library to get all the early plans we could, and there weren't many, and reconstruct it to um, to highlight the idea that this was the first arcade that got lighting through and late-night shopping through the use of gas lighting. So run us through the creative process of the East-West promo for SBS. This was one of the first experiences I got at working with very talented actors, Susie Porter and Don Don Hanny, and 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 we were doing a promo for East West, the series three, which was um, a really brilliant series for anyone who watched it on SBS. And we had to craft something with a very small budget and a one-day shoot, but using really talented actors. And uh, what I like about this spot is there was no visual effects in it whatsoever. It was just really working with performers, jamming with them a bit about what to do, if you know what I mean, Uh, sort of just trying to figure out on the run how we could bring together some scenes that would not give the game away about what was happening in Series 3 but tease people into Series 3. So it was a, a really great experience for me and one that gave me a lot of confidence afterwards in working on performance. Was it a challenge to get that much intensity into the promo? It was pretty intense. Was that your aim? Absolutely. And and it's what the actors were trying to achieve too, because they knew their characters really well and they were they were really determined to make sure that they weren't doing a, a um a cheesy marketing piece on the on the series which they really believed in. They really wanted to do something authentic that felt right for their characters. And uh and so so yeah, it was really a collaboration and of course any good performance is that once you're working with talent who have had training, these are people who understand their characters perhaps more than even you do as the director. So let's move on and talk a little bit about the industry and topics that are topical at the moment. With the rise of online content, how do you think this has affected the industry? Budgets are probably the biggest problem with online content, that there's not enough money allocated. Online content's always longer than a 30-second or 60-second spot generally, and with time, you need money. And so you're being asked to do work that's longer, but with budgets that are much more constrained because it's not going to air on TV. Actually, that makes little difference to us, but obviously a big impact on uh, what we're being offered to do the work. Are you finding that you're getting approached by people who don't have the budget and want like TVC quality work? I think so. I think the other thing, the thing that's happened with content is there's been this desire to have content, but don't worry about quality because the, the money's not there. And so we've seen a diminishing of craft with content that's been, I think, not a good thing. Funny thing about content is it's out there forever in many cases. Once it's up on the website, it's or wherever it is on the internet, it tends to stay there for a long time. And brands, I think, are sort of stuck with that work out there. And if it's not good, it sort of reflects badly on their brand. There's been a really big increase in the amount of students being trained in design, animation, visual effects and editing. What are your thoughts about the massive explosion in numbers of students coming out into the industry? 
It's very good to see people more interested in creative jobs. I, I, I went to school at a time where no one really discussed creative jobs as even a possibility, and I'm all for it. The only thing I notice is that there's not as many positions within the industry as there are graduates coming out of courses. That's where if it's too skills-based, it's not necessarily a good thing for the graduate. But if graduates learn how to think creatively, they may be able to use that in their jobs well into the future because I think learning how to think creatively and learning how to work creatively is one of the most valuable things you'll ever learn. I agree with you that learning about creativity is highly important. However, there's a lot of highly creative graduates working in coffee shops and those sort of things at the moment. That's right. And it's it's tragic because I think they've been given the impression there's an industry uh, hungry for um, fresh talent. And it, it is, but there's, there's a limited amount of jobs out there for sure. There's a lot of competition. It's like being a musician or an actor. There's just a lot of competition and a lot of very clever, creative people out there. What are the advantages and disadvantages of pitching and how do you think it affects the industry? I think the good thing about pitching is what I referred to a bit earlier, that if you do a good treatment, you define very clearly what you're promising the client you'll do and that can become something your production team can ultimately use to make sure that expectations don't get carried away. The, and, and also your team that's working around you can read that treatment and pretty quickly get on the page with what you're proposing. So it's a, it's a terrific thing. The, the bad thing about it is I think we're very often asked to work on a pitch and, and a good pitch takes three or four days to create. But the agencies that are asking us to get involved aren't necessarily that serious about using us. They've probably already made up their mind who they might work with and they're just complying with a client request to have three quotes. Yeah, that's an outrage. What do you think are the biggest challenges facing the industry at the moment? For most studios now, there's a sort of feeling that uh, there's, there's a, a lot of competition. And I think with that, we've had increased pressure on our timelines and our budgets. I also think there's a, a lot of uh, freelancers out there that are able to often produce the work that bigger studios can do from their bedroom, if you know what I mean. And then there's the, the complexities of offshoring and outsourcing. So they're the big things, I think, that are facing studios is how will they retain the work with so many downward forces on, uh, on you know, timelines and budgets, competition from the very freelancers they often employ, uh, and then the offshore problem of, uh, of, of people who can work at very different rates to us because their, their costs for housing, their costs and their needs of income are, are quite different to people in Western countries. Uh, they're big problems. I think we will get through them, but it's certainly a very tumultuous time. My thoughts are is that like the high volumes of people coming into the industry and then, you know, getting better at what they do and offering their services is really having an overall effect on everybody. And it's like if there's more people available to do the work, then creates less demand and then there's like a ripple effect that lowers people's income across the market. I think that's really what's happening. I think it's a, it's a natural thing that the industry is changing like this, that, that all industries go through this kind of cycle. And, you know, you can see that the, the VR industry is particularly at the beginning of a cycle that we were at as a post and design industry 15 years ago. There's, um, there's a demand for people who can work in that space now and there's a lot of hunger to get talent into that space and, and a lot more money perhaps rolling around ultimately if you've got the goods. So all industries go through it. This is a time in the cycle. I think things will also um, 
you know, there, there will be there will be a time where it comes back a bit. In my opinion, there's an upside to all this, which is with cheaper equipment and lots more people doing the work, we're creating heaps more awesome work, which is pretty cool. I, I don't think we've seen better work than's been happening in the last 10 years. If you look at some of the output that's happening uh, and some of the effects and the design work that's been happening from studios like ours, but also from obviously uh, some of the leading studios of the world. It's, it's, it, it was unimaginable 20 years ago that you could do things that they're doing now. And um, it's absolutely wondrous to, to look at. You've had an extensive career. What's your work-life balance like? And have you got any lessons that you'd like to talk about or ideas on the subject? Oh, this goes up and down. I I'm I keep fit. I, so I I eat really well. Um, I exercise a lot, and I think that helps me to manage my stress. Um, I uh, I have a very happy home life, and uh, and that helps as well too. I think if you've got um, your personal shit sorted out, I think I can say that word uh, on a podcast. Uh, it do, it really does help to go home and to know that you've got uh, a happy home life to go home to. Those, those things help, um, but nonetheless, sometimes I don't manage my uh, balance right and the industry kind of grabs me and, and turns me into a mess for two or three weeks. Do you have any children? How has the availability of time with your children changed over the different parts of your career? I, I think my kids probably thought that I was an incredible workaholic when I was uh, when they were young. And I think now when they sort of see the career I've built and the things I've achieved, they probably understand why. Both of them work in the industry now, uh, so they sort of have the have, they've caught the bug. So you've been through those extreme long hours then. I think the longest day I ever worked was thirty six hours straight, and I only did it on coffee, <laughs> and that was incredible to stay awake that long. And that was for a very big uh, Qantas campaign. You would have been seeing flashing white lights by that stage. I was. I think I was seeing spiders. <laughs> I think the longest I went was like ninety days working every day uh, when I started popcorn totally happens. I don't think people people outside our industry realise how much passion and enthusiasm goes into making the things we do. Working in this industry, either as a creative person or a manager or a hands-on tools guy, can be extremely stressful. Do you have any other techniques for managing your stress? I, I spent 10 years seeing a counsellor and uh, once a fortnight and I would, you know, it was it, it started as some very specific things I wanted to chat about and it ended with just kind of having a conversation and I think that was enormously helpful um, in balancing me out and, and not making it all about work and finding some other things to ground, uh, to ground me in that were outside work. And that's fantastic advice. I think that talking to somebody on a regular basis uh, can relieve a lot of pressure, either a friend or a doctor or a counsellor, especially if you're running your own business and there's a lot of you know, outstanding debt or those sort of things to worry about. I wish that someone had given me that advice like when I started out. That's right. No, I, I, I learned, I guess, from my own training at university that it was kind of good to speak and talk and and get things out and off your chest. And so I never really freaked out about the idea of seeing a counsellor. I kind of embraced it. And I think too, as a manager, as a sort of creative director, uh, it was really helpful for me to have someone to talk to about things going on at the office. I think it's really important. I think that everything that goes along with doing high-end creative projects, like you've got to have your stress levels and your balance in check, or otherwise you won't be able to operate like at your best. I also think that when you love what you do and you're passionate about it, it can easily consume you and become like the only thing that's important in your life. And you won't look back 
when you're old and like think I really was happy because I did like a whole year's worth of really hard work. What you'll probably look back and say is I wish I was with my family a bit more. And um, yeah, I sort of see that now as I get older. I think that, you know, too, if I could say this, that I've always tried to create work that has something of an emotional content about it. And I don't think you can truly create that kind of work that might connect with people and touch them in some way if you aren't kind of in touch with your own kind of stuff. So it's been very helpful for that too. So have you got any passion projects outside your visual effects work? About 10 years ago, I picked up a, um, a black and white film camera. I wanted to shoot black and white neg and um, and print it. And that was the beginning of a, a journey into photography that it came from, it was, I think it was Paul Goldman who advised me to um, pick up a camera and start shooting. I was pleasantly surprised that I could compose shots really well. And it shouldn't have been a surprise because that's what I was doing all the time on a computer. But um, I, my framing was great at the outset. And um, I, I produced some shots that kind of, uh, it was a pretty automatic kind of camera. So, But I produced some shots that kind of stunned me. I thought, oh, that's that's I really like what, I, what I've done here. I kept up at it every time I traveled. I, uh, I took a good camera with me and they got increasingly more sophisticated with better lenses and things like that. And uh, I kept shooting and... Um, about four years ago, I, I started to curate that work and, and put a website up that is, I guess, a fragment of, of some of the stuff I've shot. But that experience of curating what I had shot and starting to understand my themes, my stories, my narratives was really, really valuable. I'm, I'm really proud of it. I've got more to do, a lot more to do. And the problem now is just finding the time to really dedicate to, you know, maybe putting an exhibition on and getting a book together. Do you have a particular style or subject matter that you're particularly into? I'm kind of into photographing advertising in the public space. I, I find that advertising in the public space is very intrusive and can at times be incredibly beautiful. And um, you'll see some of that work on my site. But uh, the other thing that surprised me is I like photographing trees and I photograph a, a lot of trees and um, I don't know why exactly. I really love what I can do with them and, and what they sort of do within a photograph. I really like clouds. Like they're constantly changing and I always feel like I can just put the camera up and shoot. Yes. And it'll get something different. Yeah. They're such organic structures and trees are so messy and I feel like I'm always so neat. So I guess they kind of run counter to... They're one of the lovely things about nature is they're so random and, and kind of... Yeah, they, they kind of... Everyone's different and I've got a lot of that on my site. I also um, fell in love with sitting in the back of a taxi and taking photographs in and around of what was happening. I, I felt like taxis were a kind of small cinema that you were looking out at the front window as a bit, as a bit like you were sitting in a cinema looking at a screen, especially when you're travelling. And um, so you'll, you'll see I've done a lot of that and um, I want to do more in that, uh, in that area because I think I'm getting some good stuff. Have you got any interesting projects that you're working on at the moment? We're doing a really interesting project for Singapore. It's a, I can't really talk a lot about it. It's a confidential thing. It's it's really helping them to sort of look at where they're going, and and it's it's very design oriented, and it's a it's a it's going to be a big project and quite challenging. Is there anything that you haven't worked on yet that you'd really like to work on in the future? Absolutely, like to work on a drama. Like I, I would love to at this point um, be given a chance to uh, to work on either a, a short film or a series and uh, and develop that further. I uh, I would re really like to have a, some creative expression, not in the advertising space. I think that's a really great place to finish up. Thanks, Tim, for your open and honest answers. Uh, it's really been great to have you in and like share your experience with us. Thanks so much, Matt.
Thanks very much for listening. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. Or you could come find us on Facebook. And while you're there, it'd be great if you could give us a like. You can find Tim Doroff at resolutiondesign.com.au. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week. Bye-bye.